You're listening to the Hockey Podcast Network, your home for hockey talk covering every team in the NHL. New episodes every Monday. Download at thehockeypodcastnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Episode 2 of Leafs Guy. Jim Taddy with you. And, of course, the Leafs have one game in the books. It's a 5-4 overtime win over the Montreal Canadiens. Thrilling game, interesting game, and then it sort of evolved nicely in the end for the Maple Leafs. Not so nicely for the Habs, but it's a three-point game. They play nine more times this season, and the Leafs get the bonus point in overtime. Uh, coming up later in the broadcast, we've got further analysis from Dave McCarthy, host of Sunday Brunch and Ice Cap on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio, and a contributor to NHL.com and a regular in the Leafs press box. Uh, the way I go over games, and since we're going to deal with the, the game against the Habs because there's there's nothing else really to deal with for the Leafs, is I do an eye test report, and then I hand out awards called the Yes Guy, No Guy Awards, which is obviously a, a positive and a negative award. It's more than one. And then there's the, the humor moment. The Bubba Babu Award goes to the player that had his fortunes reverse nicely. And we'll get into that as we go along. The Leafs have a busy week. Everybody has a busy week in the NHL. It's a compressed schedule. It's 56 games and 116 nights. Then away we go. The Leafs are 1-0. and And getting set for a weekend with Ottawa. At home Friday night to the Senators in Ottawa on Saturday. And at home to Winnipeg on Monday. And of course, our next episode three of Leafs Guy will be with you on Tuesday. So we'll have a four game sample when we do that. So I like to do it in conversational form just because uh, I don't like talking at people and I find it uh, not very good. So we'll do it in conversational form. So I test uh, first period. Uh, to sum up the first period, I, I th- thought the Leafs spent most of it searching for their, their chemistry and on ice cohesion. The Habs started well, rolling lines, working hard, looking for opportunities, and the Leafs just the opposite. First 10 minutes was all Montreal, and the Leafs looked awkward at times. I think if you go to the first two penalties, Bogosian gets caught in a turnover and then uh, gets a holding penalty, and then the Leafs get another penalty shortly after that for too many men on the ice. Just a a strange play. Puck goes into the Leaf bench area along the ice, of course. Uh, Hyman is trying to get off the ice. VC jumps over before he gets on the boards. uh, uh, Sorry, before Hyman gets off, and of course, uh, Hyman touches the puck, and VC can't get off fast enough. And so there you go. Two weirdo penalties, and the Habs score in the second power play to go up 1-0. Leafs tie it, and look better, and you know the Leafs are a funny team. They always they're like a uh, a goal scorer, a really good goal scorer who gets that first goal and then pumps his game up because he knows he's on that night and can, can probably get multiple goals if not three or four. And and so I've seen these guys before, and the Leafs are exactly like that. They're motivated by the goals that go in. And so when they scored, uh, they looked good and continued on for the rest of the period. And in fact, I would give the final ten minutes of the first period to the Leafs, except for at the very end of the period. Anderson scores for Montreal, and all of a sudden it's 2-1 Montreal after 20 minutes of play. The second period is very intriguing because it, it may 
show you the difference between this year and last year for the Leafs. The Habs build off that late goal, continue to outwork the Leafs, seemingly control parts of the game. Another awkward series, another Bogosian penalty, and the, the penalty was awkward, but so was what happened next. It was a bad change in the neutral zone, open ice to targets, the puck goes in and scores 3-1 for the Habs. At that point, it's all shifted Montreal's favor. They're doing what they want to do and getting the results, and the Leafs don't have much to show for that 3-1 deficit, except for Gallagher goes in and gets in the crease and, and starts to agitate the Leafs. Uh, there's a pushback. Simmons is on the ice. He goes down the other end and does the same thing to Carey Price. Uh, gets in it with Shea Weber a couple of times, and uh, they have exchanges, but then there is a fight later on. Sherratt and Simmons get into a fight, and, uh, you know, it's not a big fight. It doesn't last long, but it's a pushback. The whole thing about what Simmons did in this game was a pushback. And at the end of the game, Joe Thornton said that was the turning point. Now, the, let's talk about the Shea Weber incident where Simmons is, is winning some battles and losing some battles against Weber, but he's, he's competing with him physically. If you go back to a year ago, there was a game at Scotiabank Arena where the Leafs had a nice lead. I believe it was 4-1. And on the way to the 4-1 lead, there was a hit by Weber on John Tavares along the boards in the neutral zone. Staple, it was a nice hit. For Weber, not for the Leafs. The Leafs did not respond that night. They blew that lead and lost the game in overtime. For the rest of that game, Weber had about a 10-foot aura around him, and nobody would go near him. There wasn't a Leaf that was in, in his area code the rest of the night. In this particular case, they're down 3-1. Simmons gets in his face, then gets into a fight with Sherrod, and then slowly things start to turn around. Then Montreal starts to draw penalties, okay? And so the Leafs get two power play goals. Nylander and Marner scored on the 5-1-3, and suddenly it's 3-3 at the end of the second period. And the Habs, even though they were winning the 5-1-5 game, got into some trouble there. Now, early in the third, kind of misleading. Uh, early on, and again, I don't know why he did this, Bogosian on a pinch, and then Anderson gets by him and is going down his left side and the Leafs' right side, and he's got Tavares to beat, and obviously John is not a defenseman, so he gets around him, goes in and scores, and just like that, the Habs have another 4-3 lead. VC, who we talked about earlier, has a strange thing happen. Not too long after that, there's a puck cleared behind the Montreal net. It goes off one of the referees right out in front of VC, who scores, and it's tied at four. The overtime was absolutely thrilling. It lasted three minutes and 24 seconds, and both teams had many, many opportunities to score. In fact, a lot of times you, you wondered where they got their air from. They were just absolutely exhausted, but they got – it was just great to watch. There's some great opportunities. Some of them ran out of gas and, and, and tried to do it, and others – there were some you know great moments there. It could have gone either way, but on the, uh, the play that breaks it all, uh, there's a, a great two-on-one, Tavares and Riley, and Tavares sold shot, made the pass, Riley buried it, and uh, 324 of overtime, the Leafs win by a score of 5-4 over the Montreal Canadiens. The eye test summary, the Habs played the Leafs the way most would, hardworking, checking, and effective, but the Leafs got back into it on power plays and a lucky bounce in overtime. So the bottom line out of all this is, if the Leafs can fine-tune that five-on-five game, then better things are on the way. They got better as the game went on. I think Montreal played at the same pace all the way through. Uh, you can't let the Leafs get on the power play, certainly on a five-on-three. And uh, Montreal was guilty of that. A little puck over the glass by Weber created the five-on-three. And, and so the Leafs capitalized, but they did fight back. Joe Thornton had net presence, and uh, so did uh, net front presence, and so did Simmons. And these two ads are going to be crucial for the Leafs. 
There's many other things that we'll go over here in terms of who did what. There's some great moments on this Leaf roster as the game got on. Certainly, if you asked me at the halfway point of the game, I, I wouldn't have agreed with that. So now what we're going to do is hand out our awards for game one, the Yes Guy, No Guy Awards, and the Bubba Babu play of the game. One Yes Guy Award goes to Austin Matthews. First time he hasn't scored a Leafs opener, but played over 25 minutes. Six shots on goal. Four others didn't get through. Three more were blocked. So he had 13 attempts and an assist on the overtime winner. And he was emotional out on the ice. I mean, you saw Austin Matthews empty his tank in that game. He was all over the place. Mitch Martin had two shots on goal. Four didn't get through. Another one blocked for seven attempts. Very noticeable. And he had the one assist. Yes, Guy Awards also to Nylander with two goals and an assist for three points. Tavares for one and one with two points in that great setup. And a further Yes Guy Award to the Riley-Brody pairing, certainly top end. And you could only watch that game and think, wow, Morgan Riley now has some more freedom. He has the right partner, I think. That's the way T.J. Brody played. I thought that they were a good pairing. And they could soak up some major minutes against the top units for the other teams. And Morgan Riley, I think, pushes it to the next level, which everybody was hoping that he would. There is one no-guy award, and it goes to the Leafs who were out hit 31-14 in this game, although... That's misleading because what Wayne Simmons did really sparked the Leafs in this game. Uh, another award of concern might be for Barabanov, Alexander Barabanov, number 94, debuting with the Leafs tonight. Played only 5:27 and basically two minutes or slightly less per period. And so there's one experiment that maybe gets adjusted for the weekend against Ottawa. I just he wasn't noticeable. I don't know if that was the game situation or what. But clearly, in debut, you would expect he would be playing more than 527, and he did not and was not a factor in the hockey game. So that's sort of an old guy for him. And the Bubba Babu Award goes to Jimmy Vc. Caught on a bad change for too many men on the ice in the first period that led to the Habs' first goal. And then, with the weird bounce off, the referee scores to tie it at four. That is the ultimate Bubba Babu in the first game. Hope you enjoyed our analysis of what happened in game one. Now for further analysis, let's bring in Dave McCarthy, host of the Sunday Brunch and Ice Cap, Sirius XM NHL Network Radio, and a contributor to NHL.com. Dave, in the Leafs opener, I thought, you know, they got better as the game went on, but their five-on-five play, especially in the first half of that game, left something to be desired. How about you? I agree. I thought... Quite honestly, Jim, by and large, they were fairly sloppy for most of that game. Uh, they took a few bad penalties uh, early in the game. Bogosian had a rough start. Uh, the too many men on the ice penalty where Mikheyev played it right in front of the bench while they were changing inexplicably. Um, couldn't figure out that play there. And then VC didn't have uh, awareness to realize that that was a dangerous time to touch the puck. That was a bad penalty that, that led to a goal. Um, so I thought, I thought quite honestly, they were sloppy, lost draws leading to goals, um, in their own end. Uh, but I do think that, and this will be a point of contention amongst a lot of people. Uh, I do believe that, uh, the Wayne Simmons fights midway through the second period really did change the tenor of that game. And it's not just me saying it. It is the players to a man, William Nylander, Joe Thornton, uh, Morgan Riley, um, uh, all uh, agreed last night that that really pulled guys into the fight and, and, and changed the complexion of that game. It gave them a boost that they needed. Um, you know, 
I'm not going to sit here and say that every time you have a fight when you're when you're down in a game you come back and win. No, that 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 doesn't happen. I'll I'll allow for that. I'll give that to people who will make that argument. You know, sometimes the other goalie uh, might be outstanding. You put on a push and you you still can't find a way to beat him. Uh, or sometimes you just don't have it that night and you continue to float around. But but I guarantee you that if they didn't have that type of a spark in a game like that where, quite honestly, I didn't think they were playing that well, they would not have come back to win. You can't just continue to float around and play, you know, sort of stick hockey and and, and be around the outside um, and expect to win. But as soon as that happened, there seemed to be a bit of a boost in their play. And it led to good things. It led to drawing penalties, which led to goals. Uh, and then they ended up having some success because of it. So, you know, it's a wonder, Jim, that teams that win consistently and that contend consistently always seem to have those types of guys in the lineup. And teams that don't generally don't have those types of guys in the lineup. So I think in, as far as debuts go, I was really impressed what I saw out of Wayne Simmons last night. Yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly. I, I, you know, I think that Leaf fans wanted their team to to start better, but they didn't. And so, what do you do about that? Well, you're down three to one on home ice. It's almost the midway point of the hockey game in the second period, and a couple of small things happen. Gallagher gets into the Leaf crease, causes some trouble, and then Simmons goes down eventually and does the same thing at the other end. Gets into a couple of skirmishes with Shea Weber, and that's important because Shea Weber has owned the Leafs. Mm-hmm. I recall earlier when I was going over the game, uh, an incident in game one uh, of last season where he stapled Tavares into the boards on Scotiabank ice and nobody would go within 10 feet of Weber for the rest of the night. So you have to have an answer to him. Uh, the fight is is sort of the, the icing on the cake because even though it wasn't much of a fight, when Simmons is skating over to the press box, he yells back at his own bench. Yes. And if you're on that bench, you're going, hey, we never had this before. That's inspirational, isn't it? That's exactly what I picked up on when I watched the the replay of that, because I don't think we saw that in in real time. We saw it on the replay, but you're absolutely right. It was the fight, and then he turned to the bench and kind of gave a, let's go, boys, and that'll that'll wake guys up when you're otherwise in a fog, which I thought they were. And something like that happens. It can't help but get your attention, um, which will give you a chance to fight back in the game. And if it doesn't get your attention then we have bigger problems here. But fortunately, um, it, it worked last night, and it did get the attention of guys. The key is, though, to not need to rely on something like that right. to occur every night. Because if that is also going to be your recipe, you're also not going to have a lot of success. But sometimes, and it was a little bit concerning maybe to me that you did require that on opening night, but sometimes you need that, and it helped out last night. The key, though is making sure that that doesn't become a requirement uh, of winning. Well, and there was some resiliency there. So they fought through that situation, tied the game up, and, and of course, the Habs opened the door with the penalties, and the late power play certainly was a, a key factor in the game. But early in the third period, for whatever reason, Bogosian decides to pinch, he gets burned, mm-hmm. and Anderson goes down the ice and obviously undresses Tavares and, and goes in and scores, and it's 4-3. That would have been a deflator, but they got their own break when VC got a gift pass from the referee out in front and scored. So, I mean, there was some resiliency. It wasn't pretty, but it was effective. 
You're right. I mean, as as debuts go, I, I thought Zach Bogosian was was up against it last night. Yeah. You know, a couple of bad penalties, as you mentioned, the bad pinch there, which led to a goal. Uh, he he didn't look great, but it's it's one game. He's got an opportunity to bounce back now, um, and and that's fine. Uh, but but other guys stepped up and 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 bailed him out. Um, you need a break every now and again too, and they certainly got one on the uh, the VC goal. Nylander admitted he said, "Well, look." It was a lucky bounce, but we were also hard on the forecheck there. They were they were trying to make something happen. They weren't just sitting back, which goes back to what we talked about a moment ago. Didn't see a lot of that aggressive forecheck earlier on in the game. But but later on in the game, you started to see them force the issue a little bit. You you start a forecheck, you get in on the on the defense, um, you take away their time and space. It's a cliche, but it's a cliche because because it's true. Um, and that's when mistakes happen. You rush the play, you know, the puck ends up hitting the referee and bounds out uh, to the side of the net, and, and VC's left all alone, and Carey Price is caught out of position. So um, because of the fact that they were forcing the issue, they got a bounce. And because of the fact that Wayne Simmons, I think, really pulled that bench into the fight, they were forcing the issue, which led to a bounce. It's, it's a chain reaction in hockey, but like I say, it's an emotional game. Um, and you need to be invested emotionally as much as you do from a talent standpoint, I think, in this league uh, to win consistently, especially in a, in a division, Jim, where the parity is going to be as tight as it is. Like I've talked to many, many people and really not once have I got a, a, a prediction of one through seven in this division that has been the same as somebody else. Like throw it into a blender. I, I think we all have our, our expectations but it's really, really difficult to 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 put a finger on how it's gonna how it's gonna pan out. Unlike it would be, say, in the West Division, where I think we can all pretty well agree it's gonna be Vegas, it's gonna be Colorado, it's gonna be St. Louis at the top of that division. That's pretty well the consensus there. After that, a lot more of a debate. But there's not that level of clarity in this Canadian division. Well, I would I would suggest to you that you're gonna see a lot of games like we did in the opener, the Leafs. And Habs, there's going to be a lot of three-point games, and so you have to finish strong. I mean, you may stumble out of the starting game, but you better finish strong in any of those games. And all the points stay within the division, too. That's the other thing, Jim. So if you're losing in regulation, it's almost like a four-point game every night because if you're losing, someone else that you're battling for a playoff spot with is getting points. So it really it puts the onus, obviously, on a strong start in a shortened season. But even more so, considering that all the all the games are within division. Okay, um, Morgan Riley got the game-winning goal in overtime. Beautiful pass from Tavares, and, and I was talking about John earlier. I, I ripped him off for an assist, so he had a goal and two assists in the uh, the opening game against the Habs. But Morgan Riley, to me, with with TJ Brody, um, as good as Morgan Riley has been in the past, it's like there's another level there, and he's discovering it. Would you agree? Well, yeah, he needs to, he needs to, I would, I would suggest rediscover it. Cause I think he got pretty close a couple of years ago. Last year was a down year. He was battling injuries a lot throughout the year as well, which, which kind of hampered him. Uh, but the year before that, the year he had 72 points, um, I thought we saw Morgan Riley that season that we had never seen before. And that quite frankly, um, I, I thought was a, was certainly a top 10 defenseman in the league that year, if not better than that. Um, and, and I think the one guy that they've brought in over the offseason that doesn't seem to be getting a lot of discussion 
is, is TJ Brody. And I think he could well be the most important guy that they did bring in. One, they've, they paid him the most money. So in a flat cap world, he damn well better be yeah. uh, the most important guy. Because if you're not, you're, you're in, in, in big trouble from a cap standpoint if you're getting that level of underperformance. But we're, we're talking about Thornton a lot. We're talking about Simmons a lot. And we talked about Bogosian to sort of add some level of, of, of uh, sandpaper to the back end. And those are all important elements. But what's the one thing that we've been searching for in this city for a long, long time, for like the last five, six years? It's a partner to play with Morgan Riley. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, and Ron Hainsey was, was much maligned. Um, I think wrongly so, because, you know, Morgan really did take steps forward in his development while playing alongside Ron. And when uh, Morgan did not have Ron last year, uh, Morgan went south again. So I, I don't think Ron got nearly enough credit for, uh, for what he brought to this team. But let's make no mistake, TJ Brody's a better player at this point in his career than Ron Hainsey is or really has ever been in this league. And if, if TJ Brody can, can provide a level of consistency and dependability uh, on that pairing alongside Morgan Riley, eat up 25-plus minutes a night, um, and allow Morgan to, to play the way that he can at his best when he knows that he has a partner he can rely on. Um, I think Morgan really is capable of being a top-10 defenseman in this league. And if he, uh, if he can get to that level, Jim, um, you, know, you talk about who's going to be a good team and who, who was a bad team based on, on just assessing each guy individually on their, on their cap uh, level performance. So if you got a guy who's making five and he's playing like an $8 million defenseman, a $9 million defenseman, which I believe Morgan can, you know, there's a significant level of overperformance. And when you get a lot of guys that you can put into the overperformance category, then you're in real good shape. But I think Morgan stands to be a guy that can really, really overperform that contract. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think if you go back two years ago when he had that good season, I mean, playing with Ron Hainsey, you were in the building as I was, you could hear Ron Hainsey guiding him. He was like a playing coach. Yep. And so obviously the injuries and in no Hainsey last year, there's a step back, but but now Morgan is, is rejuvenated and ready. He's mature. You know, he's, he's learned his lessons and he's ready to, to, to take it forward. And with a, a, a good partner, the best partner he's had, I, I would suggest to you in terms of talent level, I just think there's another layer there that he's going to excel at it and, and stay at. And, and, and this will be his defining years as a Maple Leaf. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he's not a kid anymore, right? We still kind yeah. of fool ourselves at times into thinking that he's um, on the same sort of trajectory age range as the Matthews and the Marners and the Nylanders, who quite frankly are not kids themselves either anymore, right. uh, but certainly younger in the league than Morgan Riley. I mean, it's go time now for Morgan Riley. He's a veteran in this league. Um, and, and if he's going to take a step forward as, as an undisputed number one defenseman, top defenseman in this league, now should be the time. Um, so with, with a quality partner alongside, um, a significant level of experience behind him, um, this should be the year for Morgan. And like I said, based on what we saw out of him two years ago, um, I think the potential is there. Now it's up to him to, to unlock it. And I think the key as well as playing alongside a, a reliable partner in Brody um, will be the fact that he's come into the year healthy, which is something that he really never was all year last year, and that, that set him back. So starting the year healthy, 
with all kinds of experience alongside a reliable partner, um, the opportunity I think is there for the picking for Morgan to really, really um, burst onto the scene, so to speak. I'd like your take on, on the bottom six forwards, just because when you get into a playoff series, now those are the guys that can either win or cost you the series. And I think against the eliminations against Boston over the years, it was the bottom six that did not perform mm-hmm. uh, originally Kadri by suspension and, and uh, just being outplayed when Kadri had uh, wasn't there anymore. So if you've got Kerfoot between Hyman and McKayev on the third line, not a bad third line, and Hyman has the ability to move up, and I think that happened in game one from time to time. Mm-hmm. On the fourth line, uh, two of the three got good service, Spezza and uh, Simmons, uh, and Simmons could move up, and so could Spezza given the, a, a changing situation. But Barabanov uh, only saw five and a half minutes. I mean, I I have nothing against the kid. And, and if Nick Robertson plays, he would, he might slip in in that spot in the next game. But but the point is, I don't see that the Leafs have to do an open audition for a young player on this team. I, I just think that they need uh, viable, proven NHL players that have specific roles and, and can fulfill them. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I would say in terms of last night's performance, the bottom six, not bad. Because, you know, if, if, if Jason Spetz and Wayne Simmons are two-thirds of your quote-unquote fourth line, well, they certainly impacted the game. Spezza, yeah. Spezza had an assist on one of Nylander's goals on the power play. Um, so if you've got a guy on the fourth line that can, can move up and give you power play time, um, that is beneficial. Um, and Simmons, we've already talked about. Uh, Barabanov incomplete. He, you know, he didn't play enough time to really fully assess. And, and we'll see what we get uh, out of that if, if you're a Leafs fan. Um, you know, and Nick Robertson certainly looks like a guy that, that should be able to push for a spot um, as the year moves on. He, I mean, that shot that he had in the blue and white game. I know it's the blue and white game, but my word, that, that kid has got a shot for you know, a guy that's been in the league 10 years, not a kid who's 19 years of age. It's, it's really quite something. Um, so, you know, he, he should be a guy that should be able to push. The Mikheyev-Kerfoot-Hyman line um, didn't see much out of them, to be honest. Last night, I would, I would say underwhelmed to, to an extent. But, you know, y- y- you can't have everybody going at full bore every game. And, and they had other guys that stepped up last night um, that, that made impacts. Nylander, Tavares were outstanding. Spets and Simmons chipped in. Riley was good. Um, you know, and Freddie came up with a big save when he needed to in overtime to preserve the uh, to preserve the tie on Toffoli there about a minute before uh, Riley scored. No one's really talking about that, um, right. so that's also worth pointing out. But um, you know, I would say certainly there's potential there in the bottom six. Like McKay of Kerfoot Hyman should be a quality third line that can give you you know 15 to uh, 16 legitimate minutes. Uh, they were not at their best last night, but I, I would say they certainly have an opportunity to 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 improve as the year goes on, and and it's going to be important that they do so, um, because because I agree with you, Jim. Um, too much over the last two three years, it was well, you know, Matthews and Marner and Nylander and Tavares are going to have to do the scoring because if they don't, nobody else is. You don't win like that. You need you know the Blake Coleman's. Um, you know, those type of guys uh, coming up with big goals um, throughout playoff runs like Tampa Bay had last year, uh, if you're going to get anything done. And the Leafs have not had that. And, you know, that responsibility will fall on guys like Kerfoot and Mikheyev and Simmons and Spezza to chip in. Um, so I would say the potential is there. 
maybe more so than it has been in previous years. Um, what we saw out of game one, pretty good, but certainly room for improvement still at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And not that game one's a measuring stick, but you know, that's, that's our only reference point. So that's what we're going with. I mean, clearly in the opening game, Matthews and Marner, Tavares and Nylander were very, very visible. In fact, Tavares and Nylander key uh, to the Leafs win. And, and clearly the left wingers on those lines have very specific roles. VC's talked about it and, and Joe Thornton just adds so much to that, that top line. Are you comfortable that those units stay together for a long time? Oh, I don't know. It's such a hard question because I could say yes. And then one line could be brutal in the first period on Friday and then it gets changed. Um, but you know, out of the, out of the, as you said, the reference point that we, we had on Wednesday night, um, fairly impressive. I thought Thornton more than held his own with, with Matthews and Marner. And I think that was a bit of a concern. Would he be able to keep up with the foot speed, um, and, and all of that? And I thought he was, I thought he was just fine in that regard. And I thought that line was fairly effective, um, at five on five and, and VC came up with, uh, with a big goal there late in the game. Um, you know, I agree with what Nylander said, uh, after the game, when, when he was asked about how he thought that line played and, he said, well, I, we really didn't have any open looks. It was more of a grind game, um, which I agree. You know, Montreal really did a good job of uh, making sure the Leafs couldn't fly around through the neutral zone at five on five, which is, I think, a smart play. If you're going up against the Leafs, that is a key to success if you're trying to beat this team. Do not let them fly around through the neutral zone at five on five. I think Montreal did a pretty good job. But what the Leafs showed, especially late in the game, certainly late in the game, not so much early in the game, is that they, they could win a different way. They, they grinded a little bit. They had a bit of a forecheck, and it led to the, the VC tying goal there, which was, which was good to see. Um, and, and VC was a big part of that. So um, I, I like the fact that the roles seem to be clearly defined on each particular line. You know who the, yeah. the retriever is. You know who the shooter is. You know who the disher is. Um, and when you have that level of clarity on a line, I think it helps to lend to success because you don't have three guys roaming around each trying to do their own thing. You're going out there with a plan of attack. So I like how Sheldon Keefe has assembled the lineup um, from day one in training camp. And uh, I think it worked fairly well in game one. So, you know, at this point, the best I can say is that I'd certainly come back with it again on Friday and continue to see how it goes. But like anything, um, it's an evolving situation. And I would say that that's one area where I think Mike Babcock might have uh, erred in was his, um, I, I, I guess the word would be re- reluctance or even refusal maybe um, to, to shake up the lineup when it, it, it became abundantly clear that things had gotten stale. I think it's critical nowadays in the National Hockey League that when it becomes stale, and certainly more so in a shortened season, that you don't let it fester for too long. Uh, you identify it, and then you make a change to try to spark some new life. But the way it went to uh, first game, uh, certainly come back with it on Friday. I like what I saw. Well, and I like the door you opened with that conversation because I think it's two different philosophies on how you help a young star player mature. There's two ways you can go about it. You can cut his minutes back if you don't like what he's doing, which I think Mr. Babcock did with Matthews at times. He he really governed what, you know, his ice time and, and situations, or 
you could do it the other way. And uh, sometimes if you're bored, the way to, to, uh, to create, uh, uh, I guess, positive motivation or get out of the boredom or doldrums is to actually do more, right? Assign, assign more work. And so I think it was pretty clear, even in the playoffs last year, that Sheldon Keefe was going to play Austin Matthews out. And now with, with some penalty kill time, there's a greater challenge. The more the more you're asked to do, the, the greater the challenge is. And, and sometimes, especially with a star player, that's mm-hmm. the motivating piece, right? Yeah. See, I agree the way uh, Babcock handled the young players, uh, certainly in the 16-17 season um, and the 17-18 season. I thought there was a controlled build. Nobody was assigned too much. Nobody was thrown in over their head. Uh, and they were put in positions to succeed, and they did. But then toward the end of Babcock's tenure, where it did appear that some staleness had seeped into the lineup, that's where I would have liked to have seen some um, alteration there. Because at that point, they're not first-year players. They weren't second-year players. They were well into their third year. I think they were capable of, of taking on some more responsibility, um, and they didn't get it. Um, so that, that's a point of contention there that I had with how that was handled. Um, now, certainly, if staleness seeps in, you've you got to change it and you've got to assign guys different types of work. I love the fact that Matthews is being incorporated a little bit on the penalty kill um, because, one, it engages him in the game. Two, um, great players, elite players in this league um, dominate in all facets of the game. They, they should. That should be the goal, especially when, when you have that level of capability, uh, which I believe Matthews does. Um, you know, I think he's an elite defensive player. So I, I think penalty killing is a role that he should aspire to, um, to, to, to have some level of proficiency in. Um, and, 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 and let's not kid ourselves here. I don't think he should be a guy that's killing a minute 30 of the penalty. But if he, if he has success on the draw, which is an area that I think is critical, especially when killing penalties, um, get him out there, win the draw, or at least give you a better chance to win the draw, shoot it down the ice, then get off, then put a mucker on for a minute and a half, and then change and then get him back on the ice for the last 20, 30 seconds of the, the penalty kill. You've, 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 you've helped yourself because you have a better chance to win the draw. Um, and, and then you've helped yourself as well because you're now engaging your best player in the game where otherwise he'd have been on the bench for two straight minutes or more. Or what if you take two or three penalties in, in, in seven minutes? Well, then he's pretty well on the bench for half the period. Then he gets out of the game. Then you try and get your first shift after that you're sort of just trying to feel it out. Well, now a half period's gone by and, and you really haven't got anything out of your best star player. Um, it's critical to engage the guy penalty killing. And I'm, I'm glad that um, Keefe has gone down that road because I think it's an area where Matthews can, um, can excel. I, 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 love, I love the fact that he's, he's on the ice killing penalties. And the other thing I don't understand, Jim, is that people say, well, you know, it's, it's a real risk because, you know, he could block a shot. He could block a shot... And, well, you know what? Morgan Riley's your best defenseman, right? Well, he's on the ice like seven, eight minutes killing penalties. How can we never get worried about Morgan Riley or, or you know, Victor Hedman in Tampa Bay or, or Shea Weber in Montreal? Right. Yeah. I yeah. don't get it, right? So, yeah. yeah, you can get hurt playing the game in any facet. But, you know, <laughs> what is the risk-reward trade-off here? And I think the reward, getting Matthews on the ice selectively, strategically killing penalties, right. stands to outweigh, outweigh the risk. A couple of other areas we haven't talked about. I, I just I feel bad for the goalies. Uh, I don't know how you develop any kind of rhythm with that kind of a gap 
between games going like the long off season. And mm-hmm. I felt for both goalies in the opener, and I'm sure they'll they'll get their uh, you know their their sea legs, if you will. But but you know because of the schedule, you know you got Friday, Saturday for the Leafs. I don't Freddie doesn't play both those games, so it's going to take a little while for him to get his rhythm, isn't it? I think it's one of the least talked about uh, storylines coming into this year is how difficult it is for netminders to be sharp early on. Because netminders, it's about repetition. You can work with the goalie coach so much. But you just can't replicate in-game scenarios, timing, tracking, and all of that. Um, and you really only only get that when you get you start to get some reps under your belt. So you know, typically, goalie would get uh, three to three and a half games in the preseason, which would which would give you um, some semblance of comfort by the time you get into the uh, the first game of the season where the chips are on the line. Um, Freddie at times yesterday was. Eh, you know, a couple goals yeah. in where you're like, man, I kind of need a save there if if you could. Um, like the one where Josh Anderson burst around uh, Tavares. Yeah, right. Tavares was overmatched, but it kind of, you know, it kind of went through him, right? Like that's one yeah. where you're like, man, can can you can you make me a save there and bail out your guy? He couldn't there, but he did in overtime on the right. one-timer point blank from Toffoli, which was an outstanding save because that was – I mean, he just he teed up from the uh, the the forward tees, um, and and let uh, let it all. We got to be careful how we say it these days. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and he let it loose, but Freddie was able to get across. Senior make... tees works. That's exactly right. <laughs> well, I don't know if that does, Jim. <laughs> Maybe you can say that. Well, I, I can. Yeah, I can. I can say that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, you, you know. <laughs> he doesn't make that save, the game's over with. And I asked Nylander after the game, um, you know, what was the reaction on the bench? He said, oh, man, the boys got a huge spark there. Goalie makes a save like that. That was another one of those situations where uh, it brought them some life. So um, I give Freddie credit because when he needed, needed, needed to come up with a big save, uh, he found a way to do it, and it gave them a chance to win the game. Okay, one more piece of advice before we uh, we split and, and end off the uh, episode two of Leafs Guy, uh, and that is the schedule. So Friday night Ottawa at home, and then Saturday in Ottawa, and then Monday at home to Winnipeg. Uh, you know, I'm not going to say those are tough games. Every one of these games is tough. There there are no gimmies. You have to earn your your points. Uh, in terms of the Leaf roster, I mean, there's obviously going to be some shifting going into the second game on consecutive nights. I have no idea what it would be, and I would assume that the goaltender doesn't play both games for the Leafs. So what, what do you think is the, the second wave of, of the Leafs roster that, that we may see? Yeah, I would be shocked. I don't think Freddie plays both games. I think that's a perfect opportunity to get Jack in. I'd, I'd come back with Freddie on Friday, but I'd, I'd give Jack the start on Saturday. Uh, and then I'd come back with <clears throat> Freddie on, on Monday against Winnipeg, who I incidentally picked to win the Canadian division. Uh, but that's a discussion for another day, perhaps. Um, so certainly an opportunity to work Jack in over the weekend. Um, the, the other thing you got to be careful with is, as Sheldon Keefe suggested during a morning skate yesterday, is you got to find a way to keep your reserve players engaged. Um, and, and he referenced the fact that they're not calling it the taxi squad. He said he picked up an idea from Steve Nash of the Brooklyn Nets, who is calling their, uh, their, their, their bench players the stay-ready group. So, so Sheldon said, 
um, we're calling our taxi squad the stay ready squad. In other words, don't just think you're, you know, sitting on a, a back island and you're being forgotten about. We're going to need you, just not today, but, but probably tomorrow. So I think there's going to be a heavy emphasis on making sure that those guys um, stay engaged and stay ready. And the best way you do that is you get them some work from time to time. So I wouldn't be surprised either um, to see a guy like Nick Robertson um, worked into the lineup and, and given an opportunity. And Miko Lettman worked in on the back end um, and given an opportunity. You know, Zach Bogosian did not have a great game uh, in the opener, uh, but he's a veteran. I'd come back with him on Friday because you don't want to send the message that, you know, you bring a veteran in here uh, to, to make a difference and to really um, help to change the culture of, of the way things are done. Then he has one bad game and, and oh, you're out. That's a bad message to send. I come back with Zach, but then regardless of how he plays on Friday, because again, remember, he's battled injuries over the last number of years as well. Right. Yeah, I don't think he has to play every game. No. Right? But then Saturday, I'd get Miko Lettinen in there. Regardless of how Zach plays on Friday, even if he comes, has a great game, awesome, great job. We're going to get Miko in and then come back with Zach. That way you keep everybody engaged. You're not sending a bad message. Um, you're allowing some internal competitions to build for jobs. Uh, same thing with Robertson. I'd get him in there. I'd probably get Robertson in on Friday uh, against Ottawa um, because I think you can have more of a battle there without sending a, a bad message, a deleterious message um, about you know bringing in a veteran. Barabanov hasn't earned anything. He's got to prove it. And right. you know, I won't say he he disproved his ability to play. I would say he didn't really get much of an opportunity, but. But that's okay. Get Robertson in there and, and on Friday, and then you'll get Barabanov another opportunity. And, and let's see how those two guys battle it out. Uh, but, I, but I think that's how I would handle it if I was Sheldon Keith. You know, continue to find ways to get guys uh, opportunity to keep them engaged, um, but handle it correctly as well. Send proper messages. And I think that's just as important um, uh, on the part of the head coach uh, to make sure that uh, you don't give off the uh, the appearance that, well, uh, you have one bad game, you're out, because you don't want a guy to be playing on pins and needles either. It's difficult to have success under those types of conditions. Yeah, and I, and I guess the other thing to track is Wayne Simmons and Joe Thornton, uh, because I think that was a question going into the season was how many games would they play? And the opener, Simmons, played 10-25 and Jumbo played 1730. I think if you keep them to those minutes, they do play most of the games. Yeah. See, and the other thing that they can do is they can sort of rest Thornton um, while still having him in the lineup. In other words, Zach Hyman can move up right. to the top line and yeah. assume a heavier bulk of minutes on a particular night. And you can scale Joe's minutes back a little bit, play him, play him third line minutes, play him on the power play. You can keep him around you know, 11 or 12 on a particular night, um, which, which helps them. Uh, you're not overtaxing him that way, but you still got him in the lineup if need be. So that's the other thing that really comes into play is the Leafs flexibility that they now have uh, throughout the lineup. Same thing with Simmons who can move up the lineup a little bit if need be. Uh, you can, you can alter responsibilities on a given night in a way that I don't think you really could do 
as the coach with this team in previous seasons. And I think that's another, uh, another facet that'll be fascinating to track with how, with how Keith manages this lineup, just to make sure uh, that guys aren't being run into the ground so that, you know, come playoff time, hopefully if you're a Leafs fan, they, they make it. Uh, they got something left in the tank come, uh, come the middle of May. Dave, really appreciate you stopping by. Thanks very much. Always fun to be on with you, Jim. Thanks, man. Dave McCarthy, of course, host of the Sunday Brunch and Ice Cap and Sirius XM NHL Network Radio and a contributor to NHL.com. And so three games for the Leafs before we chat again. Friday night in Ottawa, or sorry, Friday night at home to Ottawa, Saturday in Ottawa, and Monday at home to Winnipeg. That's the end of Episode 2 of Leafs Guy. Episode 3 will be posted on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay on side.